A lone figure stood clenching the sword, his knuckles whitened by the nervous tension that riveted his weather hand to the hilt. A trail of blood traced the fine razor-sharp edge, and droplets of blood falling from the tip were absorbed into the semi-arid ground. The clarity of thought that summoned such swift action was now succumbed by a fog and uncertainty. Adrenaline coursed through his body, rapid, shallow beats and breaths, and every beat of his racing heart thundered against his chest. It was deafening. And his mind whirled, searching for any semblance of reasoning to understand what just transpired in the moment. And the tension escalated, the clamoring of angry shouts, soldiers clenching their swords, the shrieks of pain from a man clutching at once was an ear and now was a gaping wound with blood running down onto his robe. Peter, the voice resonated with such authority, with such penetrating power, and it penetrated through his panicked thoughts. Peter, put away your sword. For all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do you not know that I could call my father and he would send twelve legions of angels? Peter shuddered, haunted by his own words from just hours earlier that evening. Even if I have to die with you, Lord, I'll die for you. No one saw this coming. No one expected this except Jesus. And as the chaos dissipated, Peter stood in silence, bruised, uncertain, but not broken. And this wasn't his first time, nor would it be his last time. And Peter doesn't stand alone. There in the shadows, if we were in the garden, we would be standing right next to Peter. Those moments of our life where we find ourselves acting out with impetuous, insistent, and impulsive activities. We knew better. We tried harder. We served longer, but we fell short. And racked with guilt and despair and disbelief, we find something in Peter's words and Peter's actions that rings a familiarity that we know this man all too well. Oh, we know the moments will come. It's just that we don't anticipate the now, nor do we anticipate the impact. And yet there's so much more to the story, so much more that needs to be understood. But in order to understand, you need to go back before you can go forward. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to step back into Easter from the other side. We're going to look at it not with the benefit of hindsight, but with those who are living in the moment and not certain of what Jesus was doing and why he was speaking the way he was and what caused this torrent activity in the garden. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 13. And listen as John gives us a narrative, an understanding for us to know what they lived and experienced in real time. Here's what John wrote, verse 31. And as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into His glory, and God will be glorified because of Him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, He will give His own Son, He will give His own glory to the Son, and He will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. 
A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And then Simon spoke up. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you'll follow later. But why? Why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even knew me. And Peter was left bewildered and shocked, filled with disbelief. You have to stop. You got to go, wait, 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 wait. What's going on here? This is the Passover meal. This is the night where they gather together. This was the time of stories and songs and celebration. This is when there's good food and good wine and good friends and everything is joyful and we remember what God did for Israel. Where is Jesus taking the moment? And in one moment, he's talking about this new command I give you. You need to love one another. And in the very next breath, he speaks and he says, and you will deny me. All of you will abandon me. And as the disciples recoiled and tried to reconstruct what this looked like, Peter couldn't grasp the thought, couldn't comprehend that he would deny him. And there in that moment, in this cauldron of chaos, Peter is about to learn that there is so much that he yet had to do and had to live in his faith. And it's through this crisis of faith that Peter would discover really what Jesus was doing and some lessons that would forever change the trajectory of his life. And you know, for us, stepping back into that story, these lessons are powerful and they're important for us too. I would encourage you, if you want, write them down. Reflect on them. Because if we don't learn from his experience, we learn through ours. Here's the first one. When I look at this story and I see it from the other side, our best intentions fall short. I think it's true for all of us in the room. How many of you have projects at home that are unfinished? Don't raise your hands. This is a place of forgiveness. How many of you going through COVID, you realize you had more money, you saved money, your bank account was getting bigger, and with great aspirations and great uh, intentions, you said, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to save for retirement. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to buy a new house. And then when COVID began to lift, you went, I deserve a vacation, and you went to the Riviera. Best intentions fell short. We have projects in our homes. We have ambitions in our lives, in our personal lives. Our best intentions rarely seem to achieve the desired results that we want. And we see it over and over in Peter's life. Peter learned the lesson the hard way. He over-promised and he under-delivered. And Jesus indicated things were going to change. Look at the screen. John 13. Peter didn't care about the love text. I don't want to love my brothers. I want to know where you're going, Jesus. Why can't I come now, he asked. I am ready to die for you. And Jesus said, die for me, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny three times that you ever knew me. And Luke added something. Keen insight here. If you really want to grasp the story, you've got to go to the full Gospels. Read them all together. Read them in, in harmony so you get this picture here. But Luke 22, verse 31, here's what the Bible says. Luke wrote this. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. 
But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail, so that when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And look at the response. Peter said to the Lord, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm even ready to die for you. But stop and look at that text. Look what Luke records. This is factual information brought back into the story. Peter, you're not just going to fall short. You're going to fail. You're going to fall on your face in this story. And Jesus says to the rest of them, and all of you, all of you will deny me. And Peter's still processing this. Impossible. That's just not who I am. I am the one that will be committed. I am the one that is going to be with Jesus through to the end. I'll never abandon him. I'm going to die for him. And Peter is very well experienced with best intentions. You know that, right? He's a man very well acquainted. Just to refresh your memory, do you remember the water, the boat, the storm? And is that you, Jesus? And if it's you, can I walk on the water? And as Jesus said, Peter, come, legs over the boat, and he starts booking it for Jesus. And when the wind and the waves and the voices of his friends came up, he looked around and realized, I shouldn't be walking in water. And he began to sink, and Jesus had to reach out his hand and rescue him. Best intentions that fell short. See, here's something you know. When you take your eyes off Jesus in every circumstance, your best intentions will always let you down. Peter forgot, and he never kept his eyes on Jesus. Fast forward to the story today. And look what we see. Peter's best intentions are back at the forefront. Matthew 26, 33, Matthew recorded it this way. And listen carefully to what Peter says. Lord, even if all fall away on account of you. Can you imagine if you're one of the other 11 in the room? Even if all them fall away on account of you, I never will. If there's one thing I've learned in life, it's to never use definitives. I never, I always, you never, you always. You ever learned that? If you haven't learned that yet, get married, you will. (laughs) And Peter throws it out there. Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I am never going to fail you. And the rest of the disciples were equally irritated by Peter's blurting, and they chimed in immediately, said, Lord, we won't let you down. We're not going to be outdone by Peter. We will back you. Wow, these guys were committed. They were going to bring their A game. These were weathered, tough, seasoned fishermen, feisty, zealous scrappers, and an accountant. And they were all willing to say, we're going to die for you, Jesus. Guts, grit, and glory, admirable, but deeply misguided. See, they mistakenly believed that their best efforts could achieve the desired results. That if I had the sheer willpower, I could will myself through to the perceived victory that I needed in the moment. That if I just had the right amount of energy put into this, I could tip the scales in my favor, and my will is going to give me the success that I needed. How many of us have been there? And our willpower and our best intentions let us down. We do this in our marriages. We do it in our jobs, in our health. We do it in our future, in our spiritual growth. We do it when we're going through challenges and difficulties in life. We forget we take our eyes off of Jesus like Peter did. And we try to help God out. I know what's best for my life. I'll take control. I'll be in charge. And our best intentions will always fall short. See, they miss something. Jesus gave them a clue. When they all chimed in and said, we'll never fall away, they hadn't heard, they hadn't listened carefully. And there was a little bit of an insight. This wasn't about the Romans, it wasn't about Pharisees, it wasn't about the Torah, law, or traditions. Here's what Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you. 
Friends, this was a battle against principalities and powers of darkness. This was the enemy of our souls doing everything in his power, creating every amount of chaos and trying to conquer the Son of God. And Jesus knew what was coming. And these men thought that in their willpower, somehow they're going to help Jesus. How did Jesus respond to Peter? If you notice when you read the Gospels, once Jesus renames Peter from Simon to Peter, the rock, he calls him by that name, but we get into the story here on the Passover night, and Jesus changes back, and he said, Simon, Simon, not Peter, the rock. He said, Simon, familial, loving, compassionate. Jesus understood that this was humanity teetering on the brink of failure, going to be bruised, wasn't going to be broken, but he speaks with such love, and he just exudes in that moment that Jesus said, Simon, I'm praying for you. I'm praying on your behalf that you're going to come through this. And Jesus prays not to deliver them from the trouble. He prays that they will be strengthened through the trouble. And that's an important takeaway for all of us. For there is one who sits at the right hand of the Father ever, ever interceding on our behalf, praying as we go through our difficult times. But there's a little sidebar that I have to pause and share with you. It's when Jesus said this, Satan has asked to sift you. Do you notice the first part of that verse? Satan doesn't have ultimate authority. He has to ask the Father. There is nothing that can touch our lives that does not first go through the Father's permission and availability. Satan needs to approach and invite himself into our story, and it's the ever-loving, ever-gracious, all-powerful, sovereign hands of God that surrounds your life and surrounds my life. And just like Job, you can strip me down, you can take it away, you can beat me up, and you can inflict and punish my body, but my life is in God's hands, and that's what Jesus was telling these disciples. Remember, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Do you know there's someone praying for you today? And he is the almighty, all-powerful Savior of this universe. And these men didn't understand in this moment yet what Jesus was speaking about. So why didn't Jesus just step in? Why didn't he just save his disciples? Why not just rescue them in the moment? He had the power to do that, knowing their best intentions were going to fall short. Why wouldn't Jesus just rescue them? And I got thinking about that. And then I thought back in my own life, and I remember a moment as a parent... And I remember the day that my son was about to experiment on his bicycle two wheels for the first time without the addition of the the wheels at the back. And he was ambitious and eager and ready to go. And in his eyes was the picture of destiny and opportunity. And he was going to ride like the wind. And in my eyes was a picture of stitches and bruises and bloody nose and broken bones. And I was ready to stitch him all back up again. See, there's something about parents that you learn that when your kids are ready to take the next step, you can't rescue them. You've got to let them step out and grow. They need to learn to trust. They need to learn to listen. They need to learn to step out on their own. And as they do that, they strengthen, they mature, they develop, and they grow. And Jesus saw his disciples, and he knew that he could call the legion of angels down. But if he did it, he would rob them of everything that they would need to be successful and to achieve God's destiny in their lives. So many times we pray, Jesus, rescue me from this story. And he's going, no, I'm praying for you in that story. You're going to go through this, and you're going to prevail in this, and you're going to come out of this, and you're going to be bruised, and I want to rescue you in that moment, but I'm going to wait, and I'll wipe away the tears, and I'm going to wipe away the blood, but you're going to be stronger, and you're going to be greater, and you're going to be more passionate in your faith. 
That's why Jesus didn't step into that story. Because God knows that while we are filled with best intentions, He sees the weakness of our humanity. And in spite of it all, He's there for us and with us. Here's the second thing I see in the story. It's that our misplaced zeal often wounds others. See, as the evening progresses, they leave the upper room. They make their way across the Temple Mount. They'll go down through the Kidron Valley and over to the Mount of Olives. There's a favorite place that Jesus has. It's his personal sanctuary. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says that he left eight of his disciples there near the entrance, and he stepped a little deeper into that private space with Peter, James, and John. And getting to that location, he left them there and then just moved slightly further from them, within earshot, but not too far away. And Jesus began to pray, and he prayed to his Father. And at one point, he stopped his praying, and he came back to his three disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he woke them, and he said, can you not watch with me? Can you not just pray with me? Keep watch in case you fall into temptation. And I thought about that, and I thought, what's wrong with those guys? I wouldn't have fallen asleep, would you? No, we would never fall asleep. Except you would, thank you. Honesty is good in church. Except, do you know how you feel after you've eaten a really big meal like you're going to do this weekend? And you know about an hour after that meal hits your stomach and that fresh air or the quietness of the room and your eyes start to grow heavy? We've all been there. And they just succumb to what life calls us to do, sleep. But the Bible added one other thing. Their eyes were heavy with sorrow. See, there was an additional weight in addition to the meal. Jesus had dropped some pretty heavy thoughts in them. I'm leaving. You can't follow. You're going to deny me. You're going to abandon me. Trying to reconcile and wrestle with all of this, they couldn't put it all together And yet they found themselves, and repeatedly through the night, three different times, Jesus would repeat the same activity, come back, wake them up, and ask them to watch. On the third time Jesus was there, suddenly Judas would step out of the shadows, and on his heels was a posse of temple police, soldiers, religious officials, and members of the Sanhedrin. And they stepped into the light, and the Bible says that Judas raced over to Jesus, and he immediately kissed Jesus, Rabbi! And you go, why would he do that? Well, very common practice in Near Eastern culture for a rabbi and his disciple, for a disciple to kiss the neck of his rabbi, a term or a symbol of affection. But you know what's unusual about this one? If you look at the scriptures, the way it's framed in the language is what Jesus, uh, Judas did. It was exaggerated affection. It wasn't just the common kiss of stepping up out of respect. It was an exaggerated throwing himself on the neck of Jesus, demonstrating this affection. In fact, it's the very same word that's used when the woman who wept at the feet of Jesus and cried over his feet and wiped away her tears with her hair. hair. This is the kind of expression that was taking place. And Judas was playing the part and he was selling out his master and he wanted everybody there to know exactly who was their intended person. Jesus looks at the unruly mob, the lamps, the torches, the swords and spears. You see, this wasn't a search party. This was a hunting expedition. They were coming to take captive the trophy that they would take back to the high priest. And I want you to think about this. 
of all the inhumanity and cruelty that Jesus would face. None would be so profane and so heartrending as the kiss of betrayal from that friend. And yet in that moment, Judas was called a friend. Friend, what is it that you've come to do? Then do it. As Jesus looks at that mob that's there before him, his eyes casting a glance on each of them, he asks a question. Who is it that you want? They retort, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus spoke, I am he. And if you read the scriptures, you'll find recorded in the scriptures, as soon as the words left his lips like a sonic shockwave, it knocked them all to the ground. Not one of them was standing, staggering in disbelief. They wondered, who was this? You see, when he speaks, the creator of the universe, everything will bow at his knee. Jesus wanted them to know, you are not taking me captive. I am surrendering myself to you. Jesus was in full control of that situation. They asked the question again. He asked it again. Who is it that you want? Fully intending to let his disciples go. Now, I would have thought, experiencing life from the ground after the first time I asked, maybe I'd be a little more timid the next time. Do you think? And Jesus says, who is it that you want? I don't know, but I just, I just got thinking. I wonder, was it in that moment they were like, <clears throat> um, Jesus of Nazareth? They didn't want another time on the ground. And Jesus said, I am he. Let these men go. And so fulfilled the prophecy that none of them would be harmed. But it was in that moment that all H-E double hockey sticks broke loose. Because the disciples that were there with Jesus, realizing when they stepped forward to take him captive, they shouted, Jesus, do you want us to attack now? We have our two swords. And Peter, being Peter, why wait for the command? And Peter pulls out his sword. And look what it says in John 18.10. Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? What's going on here? Misplaced zeal always wounds others. Peter intentionally thought he was proactive in the moment. He was defending Jesus. I think the words earlier from that night, I'll die for you, Jesus. He was going to live this one out. He was going to prove it. We've been there. I'm going to prove my loyalty. I'm going to prove that I can defend you, Jesus. And I will take anybody out of the way. Whoever gets in my way, you're going to know that I am loyal to you. Peter's swordsmanship left a little bit to be desired, don't you think? First I wondered, why didn't Peter swing for Judas? Hmm, I'll leave that one with you. My second thought, was he swinging for the ear or the neck? Sometimes we should stay in our gifting. Peter was a fisherman, not a swordsman. <laughs> and you have a moment where Peter is trying to defend God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to defend God? Now remember, Peter had just witnessed that entire company of people leveled out on the ground by three words, I am he. And yet he thought that the power of a single sword was somehow going to be the great rescuer for Jesus in that moment. And I look at the story and I have this question for me. 
Peter believes that he needs to take control. My question is, what had Malchus ever done to Peter? Why does Malchus have to be the person that bears the brunt of misplaced zeal? And how many times in our life are there the fragments of our relationships and the fragments of our emotions and the fragments of our spiritual journey and our physical lives? They're like the fragments of a severed ear that are just hanging there because of someone else's misplaced zeal or maybe we're the one. Maybe it was words spoken rashly that struck out and wounded deeply. Maybe it was attitudes that severed and separated people. Maybe it was choices that we made in a moment that were driven by personal agendas. Or maybe the actions were all about ulterior motives. But regardless, I'm not going to be hard on Peter. Because I think maybe I might have had a sword there myself that day. And misplaced zeal is the thing that will always take us into a territory that we don't want to go. And I look at this and look what Jesus does. I think if we could have stood inside of that moment, not looking back, but inside. Jesus, seeing everything that's going on, Peter, put your sword back. He knew that those soldiers and those temple police, they were ready for this. And they were ready to do a massacre if that's what it was going to take. And he said, put the sword back. We don't need that. But then he does something unique. And I can just see him reaching down into the dirt and picking up what had once been the fragments of an ear. And he steps over to Malchus and he takes his hand and he puts it on the side of the man's head and he heals him. Wow. He knows he's going to the cross. What does it matter to him that one man's ear is laying on the ground? He's about to suffer the most humiliation, excruciating pain of his life, but he stops. Listen, friend, if you don't know Jesus... You've maybe been told the wrong version because this is the Jesus that I serve. That in the moment of his worst nightmare, he still heals, he still restores, he still cares, he still loves. Now, we don't have time. Well, we do, but you don't want me to take the time because you have a meal to go to. But here's a sidebar thought for you. Have you ever wondered about Malchus after this event? Just imagine Malchus going home after this is over and he goes home maybe to his wife and his kids and his wife looks, what's on your tunic? Blood. Whose? Mine. From where? My ear. Your ear is there. No, it wasn't there. What happened to it? Got cut off by a sword. But it's there now. I know. God healed. Or think of it this way. What about Malchus serving the needs of his priest? standing in that mock tribunal with Jesus, and while everybody is cursing him and punishing him and punching him and spitting on him, this man is standing there going, he healed my ear. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that has the power to speak and we fall to the ground? Who is this guy that can pick up semblances of flesh and put it back on our head and heal me in an instant? Could he be? Could he be the Messiah? But you see, in that moment, so many of us stand in the shadow of Peter, and it's that misplaced identity, and it's that misplaced zeal that gets us into so much trouble. Was it curiosity, or was it regret that motivated Peter to follow the mob to the tribunal? I don't know. I really don't. But likely he stuck to the shadows coming out of that garden setting and he followed that group down through the city until they got to the high priest's courtyard. John, through relationship, 
was able to get in. Peter didn't have the connection, so John had to leverage his relationship to get Peter inside. And there inside, try as he did, Peter could not conceal his true identity. Your voice, your voice betrays you. Your look betrays you. And then the unthinkable happens. The triad of denials replete with the crude cursing common to those within the fishing trade. And at that precise moment, a rooster crows and grief strikes Peter's heart because the words of Jesus now come back. I wonder if Peter ever went to Swiss Chalet after that. I'll bet you he gave up chicken. But the Bible takes it even deeper. If his denials alone had not bruised him to the point that he thought were irreparable, the next text sealed the deal. Luke twenty-two sixty-one, And at that precise moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. You know that when you look at someone, you don't have to exchange words to share a library full of books with the thoughts that you have. Because when you look into the eyes of another person, you stare into the soul. And in moments, much more is communicated than I could ever give you in a verbal presentation today. But Jesus looks across the courtyard, already betrayed, already sold out, already on his way towards a crucifixion. And yet in that moment, Peter looks across and sees Jesus. And there is that same Jesus that said, Simon, Simon, I am praying for you. And that look of love is enough to sear the pain of regret in any human heart. And I wonder how many times we felt that same sting where our misplaced zeal and our misplaced promises, repeated failure, spiritual, dece- uh, spiritual defeat, bitterness of the soul, we all find ourselves broken, bruised, and wondering, can God use me? Do I have value? And yet here's Peter recognizing in that moment Jesus still understands. It takes me to my third thought. It's that our failures are not final. The Bible says in that precise instant that Peter left that area weeping bitterly. And I can't even imagine what those next few days for him were like. But you step into the story following the resurrection, and I want to take you over to John 21 in a few moments. Because here we pick up the story where shock and bewilderment and joy, ecstatic joy, Because Jesus has been sighted alive. Jesus has appeared to the disciples. Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of God. And of all disciples, Peter, Peter was thrilled. But even in his joy, there was lingering pain in the recess of his heart. I am not fit to be a disciple. I made all those promises and I failed him. And I wonder if Peter even thought to himself, I'm not worthy of his love. Ever notice how the enemy of our soul loves to whisper that into our ears? You're not worthy. Oh, the rest might be, but you're not worthy. Friends, you're not the only person to hear the whisper. We all do. For that is the trick of the enemy to confuse and create doubt. 
and misunderstanding. And so Peter in that moment is wrestling not only with the joy of the life, but with his own personal value, deeply bruised. You get to John chapter 21, and Peter is back in the Galilee, and he's gone back fishing, because fishing is what he does. Fishing is what he knows best, and so he does what he can do. Fishing he can control. Fishing doesn't disappoint others, at least so he thought. There's only one thing about fishing that you can't control. The fish. John says in John 21 that they had gone out that night and they fished all through the night. Early in the morning, a lone figure appeared on the beach and called out. And here's what that person said. Friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side and you will find some. Now wait. There was an intriguing familiarity in that command. And when they threw the net, they cast it on the right-hand side of the ship, their boat. And as soon as that net hit the water, the Bible says that the net began to immediately fill with a catch of fish so large that they couldn't even pull it into the boat. And they were blown away. And it gets even better because it's in that moment that suddenly John looks at Peter and their eyes lock. And he goes, it's the Master. It's Jesus. And this time, Peter doesn't waste any time. He doesn't ask for permission to get out of the boat. He just jumps overboard and he treads water all the way back into the shore. He wants to see Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like the moment that he hit the beach? To throw his arms around Jesus, the two of them embrace. And in that moment of restoration where all that pain seared deep into his heart and all that confusion that had reigned over the weekend that he had gone through, suddenly just to be held by his master, not worthy of his love, but welcomed him again into his arms, or at least so he thought. And Jesus had prepared a little barbecue. I'm looking forward to heaven because there seems to be a lot of food in the Bible. He prepared a little barbecue. He had some fish roasting over the fire. He had some bread. The rest of the disciples came in from the boat. They gathered together. Jesus blesses the food, and he breaks the bread, and he passes the fish. And I'm sure there's more than one that sat there and went, hey, you know the last time we did this? We fed like 5,000 men and all their wives and all their kids. We're taking leftovers home today. And when the meal was over, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, come walk with me. See, Jesus knew exactly where Peter was. He knew the pain that he was still wrestling with. He knew the uncertainty that was there in his heart. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to John 21. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to show you a couple of things here. 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Here it comes. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Well, then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, many commentators and communicators and speakers will remind you that the parallel is back to the three denials that Peter made, having not known Jesus. And this seems to be the wonderful restoration 
an affirmation of his calling. But can I share something with you that's very, very unique about the text? When Jesus said the first time, he said, Simon, do you love me? Our English translation doesn't give us this, so we, we, we don't get the context. You have to go back into the original cultural context. The word was agapeo. Do you love me with an unconditional love? And Peter replied, Lord, you know I love you. Phileo, brotherly love. So Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? Agapeo. And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Phileo. And then the third time, Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? Phileo. And Peter goes, Lord, you know I love you. Phileo. Jesus was calling Peter back to where he needed to be. But when he realized that Peter couldn't get back to the unconditional love declaration, then Jesus stepped down to meet Peter exactly where he was. I'm okay with that, Peter. Then let's love each other at this level. And the restoration that comes, friends, this is so powerful. God meets us in our moments of brokenness. God meets us in our moments of bruising. God meets us in our moments of failure. And he doesn't expect us to do something that we're not prepared to do. He steps in and brings us to a level that we can embrace. And then he recommissions us. And you know what's really powerful about the text? If you go all the way back to the beginning of the message in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, each of you. And when you have returned to me, see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew this moment was coming, but Peter missed all of this. He, he missed the trail. He missed the thread. He missed the story. Jesus knew there was a moment, Peter, you're going to go through this, and you're going to feel like you're all alone, and you're going to feel like you're bruised and broken, and you're of no value and no worth to me in the kingdom. But Peter, here's what I want you to know. I have purpose for you. I have destiny for you. I have value in your life. And if you love me, then feed my sheep. And in Luke 22, he said, I want you to strengthen your brothers. In fact, you're going to be the rock the person I told you that you already are. Can you imagine Peter in his heart, what's going through his mind as Jesus is affirming him and he's walking with him in this? There is so much power in this story for us as we step forward. Friends, what is the enemy whispering into your ear today? What are the lies? What are the deceit? What is the doubt? What is the confusion that he speaks over you? Can I remind you that Jesus understands who you are and where you are and how frail we are as humans, and that's why he went to the cross. That's what Good Friday is all about. Because we can't do this on our own. Our best intentions are going to leave us short. And our misplaced zeal is just going to wound everybody around us. And our failures, they're not final. That's what Good Friday is all about. Now, we'll wait till Sunday to really throw a party. But when Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. He was celebrating the fulfillment of all that God had sent him to do because he had no doubt that God was raising him from the dead. But sin and the penalty and death has all been defeated. This is the power of what God is doing. Sometimes, I think if Jesus had not done the little beach moment with Peter... Peter would look back at that Passover as the defining moment in his life. And that defining moment would have been where he overpromised and underdelivered, and it would have been filled with pain. But Jesus looked at Peter and he could see Pentecost. He could see a man transformed by the power of God, filled with the Spirit of God, preaching to people in the open public, not afraid of anybody 
to know that he was calling Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And through the conviction and power of his preaching, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of God that day. I love how Jesus sees us and he calls us out to be the best that we can be. That's who you are in his eyes. That's how much he loves you. So this Good Friday, you might be bruised, but you're not broken. And God's destiny is yet to be fulfilled in your life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And I pray that today each of us would uniquely and personally take a moment to reflect. Where's my Passover? Where's the pain, the point of pain that I have been trapped in and I have been confused in? And I pray, Holy Spirit, that what you did through Jesus into Peter's life, you would do even today in our lives. That this isn't simply a day of commemoration. This is a day of committal. This is where we declare one more time, not through might and not through power, but through your Spirit. We will serve you. So may your truth renew us, restore us, and commission us. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.